And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I had a conversation way back in 2016 right here with journalist and author Frank Bruni, who was then a featured op-ed columnist for the New York Times. We talked about his life, his craft, the wild presidential campaign unfolding at that time, the world as he saw it. Well, he's seeing the world much differently now after a personal trial that has at once challenged and enriched his life and expanded his vision. It's the subject of his brilliant moving new book, The Beauty of Dusk, which was just released. I sat down with Frank this week to talk about all the changes in his life and what they've taught him. A final note, as we have on many occasions here on the Axe Files, we discuss the subject of depression and suicide. If you or someone you love is struggling with these, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Frank Bruni, it's it's great to see you again. Thanks for being here on the occasion of the publication of your fantastic uh, new book, The Beauty of Dusk. Good to see you. Good to see you, David. I should point out to people who are going to miss the whole history of Frank Bruni that we covered that in a previous conversation. So uh, you can find that in our archives of, uh, of the Axe Files. But the last time we got together, since the last time we got together, there's a whole new chapter in your life uh, that's pretty momentous, and that was the occasion uh, of this book. Uh, and to talk about that, uh, the, the the trauma that you went through that that uh, led you to the writing of this book and to a whole lot of changes in your life. To a, whole, to a whole lot of wisdom, I hope. Um, yes, there's a lot of wisdom in this book, I'll, I'll say that. Go ahead. <laughs> in October 2017, I woke up one Saturday morning, uh, and in fact, uh, well, getting ahead of myself, I woke up one Saturday morning and uh, I couldn't see right. There was a, a dappled fog over the right side of my field of vision. And at first I assumed there was some gunk in my eye from the evening. Then I thought, oh no, it's probably got to be a, a smudge of something on the lens of my glasses. And I kind of denied what was really happening for a number of hours. Uh, And as the day wore on and I washed my eye out and nothing happened and I recovered from maybe one too many glasses of wine the previous night and nothing happened and I had more coffee and nothing got better, I realized that I had a problem with my vision. Um, And over the subsequent days, as I pinged between doctors, I learned that I had had a kind of stroke that um, that had ravaged the optic nerve behind my right eye. And I also learned at the same time that when this happens to one of your eyes, there is a significant chance it will happen to your other. I also was told there was no treatment, which is in fact the case. So I faced in the span of just several days, uh, adjusting to life with compromised vision and adjusting to the prospect, living with the prospect that I could end up legally blind. And that's the, gen- that, that's the beginning of my journey and the, and the kind of foundation of this book. Yeah, the beginning of your journey is horrifying, and you wonder where all of this is going to lead. First of all, it led you to try and search for some cure or uh, at least something that would arrest the uh, 
deterioration of, of of your vision, and that didn't that didn't work, even though it was fairly involved. Yeah, no, I qualified for, and within two weeks of the moment of that morning when I woke up, I was enrolled in a clinical trial um, of the only treatment being explored right then for this rare condition, which is known as NAION. And so I was in a trial where, uh, you know, to my horror, for three months in a row, once a month, I had to go into the hospital and get an injection um, into the affected eye. Um, and it was a whole, <laughs> it was a whole ghoulish thing where they use an eye clamp, and I felt like I was in the movie, a movie, A Clockwork Orange. Do you remember that movie? Yes, David? yes, yes. Of course. I mean, it, it immediately brought that to mind, um, and that was uh, it was an FDA approved uh, clinical trial, but um, it had such poor results, including no results for me, that it was it was suspended before it even reached full enrollment. But I did go through. Um, all three months of it. And then I qualified for the next significant clinical trial, which also involved needles, but it was six months of twice weekly injections into my thigh or stomach that I learned to administer myself. So I lived at home with all these syringes and vials and a sharps container. And it was a pretty, pretty stark physical reminder that my life had definitely changed. How do you get your arms around? You you describe it uh, here, but get your arms around that change and the fear of further change, because as it was, you were hampered in uh, in your vision was such that when you tried to write, there were physical challenges to that because of the distortions that yeah. uh, this uh, uh, this loss of sight in one eye had created. Um, but you're a writer. Yeah. And, you know, we take we take all our senses for granted. Everybody does until we don't have them. So what uh, how how do you how do you get your arms around that the reality of where you are and the fear of where it could be going? Well, I, I did certain practical things and then I did certain philosophical things. So, I mean, I did some really basic practical things. I I had never even noticed or checked whether I had disability insurance at the New York Times. And I found myself calling the HR department and, and finding out, yes, I could contribute more and I could, I could bring that up to a maximum reimbursement. Um, so I, I, did, I did practical, boring things like that. I began um, making a kind of effort I never had before to listen to audiobooks uh, because I was reading more slowly and just in case I lost the ability to read altogether. Um, those things made me feel like I had some agency and some power, and they were they were both smart to do on a practical level, but they were also, um, I think, psychologically useful. And then, David, the most important thing I did, and at first I began to do it instinctively, and then I did it almost as, as a course of study. I, I looked in a new way at all of the people around me, people I mm -hmm. knew well, people I knew just a little bit. Um, and I did a kind of tally in accounting I'd never done before of the hardships that they were dealing with in their lives or the hardships they'd been through. And that was maybe the most important thing I did of all, because I think we all walk around, um, because most struggles are invisible, we all walk around sort of oblivious to the fact that struggle, hardship are the default settings of human life. And because of that, we feel envy that we shouldn't feel. We feel self-pity that's pointless. Um, and if you take a more truthful and complete inventory survey of the people around you and what they're going through and what they've been through, it makes it impossible for you to feel the most dangerous thing of all, which is self-pity and its cousin defeatism. Yeah. And 
implicit in that is that there's also this pressure to be less than transparent about the things uh, that are are not perfect in your lives or the things that have gone wrong in your lives. And you have this sandwich board theory of life, which I love, which is if you just knew, if people just had sandwich boards and said, these are my struggles, that, you know, it would immediately trigger at least the 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 possibility of empathy and understanding and uh, and have the effect that you do, which is, you know, shit, I thought I had it bad, but so does everybody else I know have uh, struggles that I didn't even know about. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the person, uh, whether it's someone you know well or only a little bit, the person who seems to be on a glide path, very likely, if they were wearing a sandwich board that briefly listed, it, it might say, lost lost a parent at a young age. It might say, have an autistic child and never feel I can do quite right by him. I mean, if you saw what people, re- if you saw the complete pictures of people's lives, um, you would, as you just said, be called to empathy much more quickly and robustly, and you would be steered away from self-pity. Um, I think it'd be a better world. I think it would be not just a truthful, more truthful world, but a kinder world. And I think about this as I know you do in terms of our, our, our political culture. You know, we turn everybody into abstractions. Um, and I guess that's what I'm talking about. If people weren't abstractions, if we saw them in full dimension, um, I think our interactions with them would be so much, uh, so much more constructive. Yeah. You know, the whole uh, conceit behind this podcast, which started now closing it on seven years ago, was exactly that, which is... Um, we turn people into public li- in public life into sort of caricatures and cartoons and one-dimensional characters. Um, and so when I have a conversation on this podcast with Carl Rove about uh, the mutual experience we've had of losing a parent to suicide, suddenly it becomes a different kind of conversation. And maybe when people leave the conversation, they have a slightly different sense of who we are as people. You wrote about uh, Anthony Bourdain, Bourdain, Tony Bourdain, who I'm sure you, you well, you talk about knowing him, yeah. uh, and uh, and Alan Kruger, who is someone you and I both knew, who was uh, chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama, both of, both of whom uh, died by suicide. And these were people, Bourdain, you know, famously, at least on film, he had what you call swagger, uh, he had that star quality, you know, that every boy, I wish I were like him. Oh, I mean, I, I wish like I were like him all the time. I mean, we both, I was the restaurant critic of the times for five and a half years. Yes. And so, and so we inhabited a food space together. And in fact, when I left that job and I write about this in the book, um, he had me on his show, no reservations at the time we ate sausages together in downtown Manhattan. I did a times talk with him. And every time I watched him or interacted with him, I thought, wow, I wish I had his confidence. Wow, I wish I had his metabolism. You know, I eat three big meals a day and five <laughs> pounds. Come on. He seemed to be impervious to weight gain. I wished I had his fluency. I mean, I've known few people in my life who could give an interview like the one we're doing now and come out with one perfect sentence after another, one witticism after another. I mean, the guy was multi, multi talented. And the number of times I thought, wow, he has it made. And then, you know, boom. No, he didn't have it made. Um, what did you What did you think, by the way, when you heard that news? 
that he committed suicide. I was yeah. absolutely shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I forget the order, though, but I remember quickly kind of becoming philosophical as well, because within a matter of days, both Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Took right, their right. Lives. The designer, and, yes. Right. And in different ways, I'm sure each of those two were living what people thought were ideal fairy tale existences. But then I mentioned this in the same section of the book. I also remember in that in roughly that same extended time period, I'm a big pro football fan, of which I'm ashamed at times because it's it's a needlessly brutal sport. Um, but I, I love watching it and I'm steeped in football knowledge. And I remember the press conference that Andrew Luck Yes, you wrote about that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I write about that in the book because he's he tells everybody, he tells the world in such a pained voice about how tough football has been for him, how much pain he's been through, the loss of control he felt. Like we thought he was this matinee idol, you know, the Stanford graduate, Heisman Trophy winner, good looking, smart, uh, one of the premier quarterbacks in the National Football League. How many young men, how many boys thought... If only I could grow up to be Andrew Luck. Well, we learned in that moment, Andrew Luck didn't want to be Andrew Luck. You know, that what we thought was a fairy tale existence had elements of a horror story to it. I, th- I think of Michael Phelps as well, the most decorated Olympian of all time swimmer who, you know, shortly after winning a gold medal, contemplated suicide. And, yeah. you know, you wonder in these cases, if they had a sandwich board, Andrew Luck, it was a healthy thing for him to come forward as he did. If they had sandwich boards, perhaps they would be with us today. Yeah. But, you know, you get trapped in your own celebrityhood. You get trapped within the image that you've created and the expectations that you have created and that others then associate with you of this kind of idyllic, iconic figure. You also spent a lot of time talking to people who had gone through loss of vision, loss of their sight. I shouldn't say vision because what's very clear is that they lost their ability to see, but in some ways it very much expanded their vision. In fact, the subtitle of your book is on vision, lost and found, and that's so apt. So talk about those interactions. And, uh, you know, I was struck by someone who was Judge uh, to tell from the retired judge from the U.S. District Court in Washington, a legendary figure in the law, and his quote, a starfish can uh, regrow limbs, but that's nothing compared to what humans do. Talk about that and how it helped you to have these interactions. Sure. Yeah. Well, he's an example of that uh, humans being able to do more than starfish. He, I remember so well, David, the day he said that to me. And he said it to me as we were sitting on the metro going from um, the stop where his chambers were to his apartment to have dinner with his wife, Edie, who's who's a lovely person. And we had walked from his chambers to the metro station. We had walked through the metro station. And yes, that's a walk that Judge Tatel would never have made on his own, you know, because he's legally blind. Um, But it's a walk he can essentially do on his own. So I was with him, but I was beside him. I was not leading him. I was not telling him when to cross the street. He had learned in the decades of his blindness how to, um, he had learned how to take in and process auditory cues. So he kind of knew what was going on with the traffic. He basically knew in his body from the number of steps he was taking, whether he'd gotten from his chambers to the elevator, the elevator to the front door, the front door to the near corner, 
He knew his way through the metro. And I was just there in case. I was just there as a, as a sort of fail safe. And I'm watching him do this. And it was such an incredible testament to, uh, to human nimbleness, to the capacity to adapt. And when he said that, that quote to me, which I love, which I think is as close to a motto as the book has, you know, starfish can regrow limbs. That's nothing compared to what people can do. He had just shown me that. And there are various people in the book who show me that. And I think seeing that for me personally, but for anyone who encounters it, is so incredibly important as a way of maintaining hope for the future, as a way of being reassured that, yes, you are going to go through challenges as you age, certainly physical challenges, but you have resources. You have a kind of elasticity, both of spirit and of mind as a human being, that are going to help you get through them in a way you maybe aren't counting on, but can. Yeah. And what's so striking, I mean, you talk about an, an architect who kept on doing his work and could, uh, through the tapping of his cane on the floor, make certain deductions about the environment in which he was in, and uh, that was helpful to him in terms of planning. You know, and there, there are a series of stories like that that all underscore the fact that we have all of these senses and the brain has all of these capacities that are in many cases underutilized, but in almost all cases underappreciated. Exactly. No, exactly. And in fact, there's a whole field of medicine or there's a whole stride in medicine. It used to be the case up until just decades ago um, that doctors believed that the brain kind of just kept fading slowly after a certain age, you know, and that it was not capable of generating new neurons. It wasn't capable of fundamental structural changes. There's a whole field now of recent decades called neuroplasticity, where we understand that actually uh, brains that have suffered trauma, um, people who've lost a sense and have another sense come in to compensate this is all happening due to rewirings and neural new neural pathways being created in the brain. I talk about this at least briefly in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it is something that's fundamental to our ability to age, to our ability to adapt. And when you understand that it can happen and that, in fact, will happen in most cases, um, you have a whole new attitude about what's coming down the road and your ability to deal with it. Uh, yeah, you, you actually uh, quote uh, Sanjay Gupta, a uh, colleague of mine at CNN, but more importantly, a neuroscientist who has written extensively about this and about the changed theory in neuroscience about this. You know, of course, there's deterioration over time, but there are also compensatory capacities of people to fight against that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You know, you wrote about this guy, James Holman. Am yeah. I getting his name right? You are. What, what an extraordinary story. Uh, talk about uh, this uh, figure out of history. Yeah. Because, I mean, given the, the challenges of his time, what he accomplishes, you know, extraordinary. I was I was gobsmacked that I'd never known about him or encountered his story before. H had you ever heard of him before the book? No, not until I read your book. So, uh, I mean, this is the most extraordinary thing. In the late 18th century, early 19th century, he was probably the world's most famous traveler. He was British, and he wrote these expansive travel books. But he was known, he was, it was almost like a, a figure of folklore. He was known as the blind travel writer because he was blind. 
And he nonetheless traveled with very little help um, to various continents. He went to Africa, he went to South America. Um, and we're talking like, this is before airplanes and the kind of ease of travel we have now. We're talking like long sea voyages. And he would write about these places um, by processing them through stimuli other than sight, other than vision, other than visual stimuli, but also because so much of, of travel is receiving stories, you know, learning the history of a place. He could do so much to evoke a place and to bring it alive for people without ever actually seeing it. And it's such an oxymoronic, paradoxical thing. I was thinking, and I believe I write this in the book, our word for that sort of travel is a is a redundancy sight seeing that's yes, how much yes, yes yes that's our prejudice for seeing all travel in terms of the visual but he's an example not only of the extraordinary feats you can accomplish without you know full use of all your senses but also he's an example of our prejudices about what it means to experience something and of the various ways you can experience experience something you know and get full meaning out of it yeah, and in fact, maybe get deeper meaning out of it. It, it could be that when you're sightseeing, you oftentimes miss, you know, more profound elements of the experience. And you, while you're busy taking, you know, your thousandth picture on your iPhone to send back home, but I mean, you know, given all the barriers to travel then and just extraordinary. I think you described in the book, you know, him being at sea during some particularly tumultuous storm and yeah. describing that experience so vividly all done through other senses that he yeah, uh, yeah. employed. Yeah, re really something throughout the book. What's wonderful about it is that you interweave your own story with so many other stories, but you talk about uh, your dad also, Frank, and there was one one thing that really, really struck me, which was the drive you took with your dad, who was, uh, who was descending into dementia, difficult for you to communicate, and you threw uh, Sinatra on your, uh, on your radio, and you both were completely then absorbed and singing and enjoying. And, and it's just another example of a sense that we don't so much appreciate. There was a documentary a few years ago, but it was about someone who was bringing music into the into homes, nursing homes where people were being treated for dementia, and they would find out what music that these people liked in their lives, and they would put together playlists for them, and they put headsets on them, and these people who could not communicate would come alive and would sing, and I mean, I just loved the idea of the scene with you and your dad. I love that you, um, I love that you're stopping and dwelling there. That was, as, as you've described it, that was an example of the kind of, oh, just treasure of a moment that I used to let pass by me much too mm -hmm. quickly and not savor. But because of what I'd been through with my site, because of the sorts of interviews I was doing with other people for the portraits that are in the book, um, I had developed this new ability to say, this is a special moment enjoy it and commit it to memory. So it's a keepsake in the treasure chest of memory that you can pull out in the future. And I mean, it was a cinematic drive. We were, you know, as you said, it was, it became harder to communicate with him because of his um, 
mental deterioration. He and I had always had some difficulty communicating. Um, we're not of the same political stripe. We're of very different generations and on and on. But I was showing him how you know, hands-free, I could make Siri play a certain music. And I said, Siri, play Frank Sinatra, because that's one of the few Venn diagram overlaps of his musical taste and mine. And the song Summer Wind came on, and I said, that is my um, favorite Sinatra song. And he said, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's mine too. And then the next song that came on, just as we got north enough on the Jersey Turnpike, that just as Manhattan came into view, the song New York, New York came on. Mm. And I thought, this isn't a drive, this is a movie. But I just, <laughs> I, I paused there and I looked at the smile on his face and I could feel the smile on my own face. And I thought, this is the kind of thing I'm not going to ever let zip by without full appreciation again. My father-in-law, who passed away at the age of 99 and did very well most of his life, but at the end of his life, he was struggling and he was in a um, assisted living center and my daughter, who has special needs, sings in a choir, and they came and they sang uh, sort of old standards at my uh, father-in-law's assisted living center. And uh, my father-in-law joined in the singing. And uh, when it was over, my wife, Susan, she was in tears. Uh, she said, you know what, it's 90-something, 90 96 years. Or I, I don't, I've never heard my father sing before. But these, these songs triggered memories in him. Uh, yeah, it was a, it, that was so moving, as was your loving chapter about your dog, Regan, and the role that she's played uh, in your life, partly because, as I told you before we started recording, you know, I have this dog, Mac, and I am, and all my producers and everybody on the staff on on this who are listening in now will attest to this. I am ridiculously just head over heels in love with this dog for all the reasons that you enumerate and elaborate on in in this chapter. But talk about that relationship and what that has meant to you, and how does it relate to? How is it part of this journey that you've been on? You know, it's a big part of the journey. And thank you for giving me. I'm as crazy about Regan as you are about Mac, right? It's Mac. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mac. Yes. Yeah. And so, as you know, this is a great privilege to be able to shout my love of Regan to the world. Yeah, you're um, in the right and, place, brother. Well, no, and in my, I mean, in my weekly Times newsletter, I would say every third week, there's a picture of Regan. And on the weeks when there's not, readers write in and say, where's Regan? Is everything okay? <laughs> it makes me so happy. Um, but no, Regan was a big part of this journey because I realize sort of intuitively toward the start that one of the dangers when you have this sort of medical crisis event, when you have this sort of um, extraordinary surprise and challenge come along, is you can quickly become self-consumed and not in a productive self-care sense, but in a destructive, self-pitying, yes. angry, why me sense. And I felt like it would be a good idea to do something that took me outside myself, that that called on me to lavish care and worry and attention on someone or something other than me. Um, and Regan was my little brother's dog. My little brother had just become an empty nester. Um, so it was clear that it was no longer ideal for them to have a dog. And I said, I played the self, I, I, I made them feel sorry for me. I mentioned my compromised and imperiled eyesight every other sentence and said, please give me Regan. And they did. And she came into my life three, three years ago this week. Um, 
And she has done that. She's taken me outside myself. She has brought immeasurable joy into every day. And we all should do those things that are going to bring us joy. And she's also also really important, David. She has tugged me out into nature. We walk yeah. about eight, we walk about eight miles a day. We probably spend about two hours a day on trails in the woods here around my house in Chapel Hill. I was going to say you look good, Frank. You look oh, like um, you're a kid. You, you look pretty fit over there. No, I think it's just good lighting. I think I just I think <laughs> I think I chose a good corner of my house. But um, but you know what? Let's I'll take it. I'll take it. But um, but you know, I mean, that's a big thing too. I think um, I think a lot of people learned during this pandemic something that it's silly that it took us a pandemic to learn, or that it took me a medical crisis to learn, which is the amount of solace and peace that you can get from oh simply God, yes. taking a long walk. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Regan, Regan, Regan has guaranteed that I never shirk on the long walks. I promised her, um, she didn't understand what I was saying, but I promised her, I'm going to bring you into my life and I'm going to do right by you. I am going to make sure you get a lot of exercise. I'm going to make sure you never lack for a bone you like to chew on. And I've been a man of my word. Yeah. You know, this point, you, you raise about the pandemic. First of all, a lot of people got dogs during the pandemic, and I worry about what happens to those dogs now, and I hope that they're continued to be loved and cared for. But the bigger point is, I realized, you know, I've been privileged to have a lot of great experiences in my life, and I do a lot of things that are, are stimulating. Uh, but I realized during the pandemic that going for a walk with my, with my wife and my dog in the woods uh, is sublime i mean yeah. and you have to stop i think one of the things the pandemic has done uh and it may be the reason why we have what's called the great resignation i'm not sure is that it did kind of force you to think about what really makes you happy the absence of those things that you had to do you know uh and creating more time for those things that you actually wanted to do uh the, the simple things because you weren't going to travel and you weren't but the just the 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 peace and the beauty uh, and and the satisfaction of and yeah watching your dog i mean watching my dog run and just with in a pure joy uh, uh is um uh you know i just never fully appreciated how much that meant to me and now i mean it, it's a, you know, like I said, it's embarrassing. But the, a trip to the dog park uh, to watch him run with other dogs and whew, it's 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 uh, it's it's really satisfying in a way that I grew up in Stuyvesant Town in New York, so we weren't even that was when it was a uh, very austere uh, housing development for returning war veterans. It's not the sort of luxury housing that they. Posited as today, where you could have dogs, you weren't even allowed to have a parakeet practically. <laughs> so uh, this was all, you know, this was later in life when my wife introduced me to dogs. But yeah, it's something. But let me ask you about the the pandemic itself. You had this trauma, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this before we go because I'm really interested in how ultimately you feel it's changed you. But uh, how do you think it, this pandemic, which has been a societal trauma, how has it changed us? Uh, I think in some of the same ways, it's interesting you ask that. And I, uh, I explore this a little bit in the book. I probably could have explored it more. But I think there's a way in which the pandemic was a communal, a communal medical crisis event, you know, similar to what happens in an individual life. 
and uh, the downsides of the pandemic are, are, are incalculable. But if there's an upside, um, I think a lot of us learn there's not always only one way to do things, right? There's there are always workarounds. I, I as I mentioned before, I used to be a restaurant critic at the Times amid a gazillion other things I did there, and I was I was watching um, in my neighborhood around New York City the sorts of innovations. Uh, the ingenious adjustments, the workarounds, the the carry me, uh, the, the kind of carry me through this moment things that restaurateurs were doing, which were such testaments to human nimbleness and ingenuity. And I feel like the pandemic showed us that um, we are going to go through junctures in our public life and in our private lives that are much, much less than ideal, and that maybe even at times feel like dead ends. But we have more resources at our disposal than we realize. We have more creativity and cleverness at our disposal than we realize. Um, and just because we can't go down this road doesn't mean there's a side road over here that may not get us to our originally chosen destination, but will get us where we need to be. I guess I sound a little bit like the Rolling Stones now. You can't always get you want get what you want, but you try, but you get what you need. Yes. Um, the pandemic at the, the pandemic um, for those people who were blessed enough not to lose loved ones, lose their own lives, or suffer economic devastation, I think was a lesson in adaptation, in ingenuity, and in resilience. One of the principles you laid down in this book is: while we have minimal control over the events that befall us, we have the final say over how we regard and react to them. And this certainly, it certainly relates to that. I do wonder. On the one hand, you would think that since this is something that we all went through together, that it would foster that we all had sandwich boards in certain ways uh, hanging from us uh, during this pandemic. But it didn't it hasn't resulted in necessarily a greater level of empathy or connection to each other, partly because of the class distinctions you mentioned if you're fortunate enough not to have lost someone and if you could navigate it well, well, you're more, most li- more likely to have done that if you were, you know, if you were of a class that could have afford to navigate it. Uh, but still, it, it has become weaponized in the way so much else has become weaponized in our, in our current politics in a way that's, uh, that's disappointing. Uh, It's heartbreaking um, because you're absolutely right. You would think that this would be precisely the kind of communal event, for lack of a better phrase, that would, if nothing else, could bring us closer together. And as you said, part of that, I think, was rendered difficult or impossible by um, the much too gross inequities in American life. But I think as much as that, uh, you mentioned weaponized, but but the word I would also put before weaponized is politically weaponized. Yes, of course. Yeah, we learned that our partisanship at this point is so profound and so entrenched um, that it becomes the way we process everything. So this couldn't pull us out of our partisanship. Partisanship seemed to be a partisan lens. Seems to be what almost everybody put over it, um, and that and that started. Uh, you know, at the very top, that started very early on with the way Donald Trump responded to this. Um, I mean, it feels like a century ago, but I remember those initial news conferences um, and just how kind of steeped in political posturing they were um, and how quickly everything devolved into a blame game 
um, as opposed to a communal project to lift everybody up and get through it. Um, there was a real failure of American leadership that extended well beyond Donald Trump. And there was a failure in all of us um, uh, to all of us fail to look at what binds us as opposed to what divides us. And, and I just don't know where this all ends in that regard when it comes to partisanship and polarization. Yeah, well, I think it's a central challenge. It's the central challenge of our time for our democracy, certainly. Speaking of which, I want to talk about some of the, there, you, you talk, uh, some of your stories are about public figures that you know. Uh, one of them, uh, Bob Kerry, uh, the former senator from Nebraska, Vietnam War veteran, lost part of his leg in that war. And he, he talked about how, I mean, obviously you, you asked him about his struggle, which he didn't talk much about. You elicited that from him, but he did talk about how uh, ha that struggle changed him in a way that made him more empathetic. Talk about that. Yeah. He said that after that happened, which happened very, was a very young man. He said it was like he had uh, extra antenna or his antenna were extra sharp for people who were experiencing some sadness and pain for people who were like on the edge. He could just pick, he could pick up on it because he'd been there. And I guess he kind of just, that energy was something he could sense or those small verbal cues were cues that he could read. And so he feels like it has made him a person who's much more alert to and likely to respond to signs of distress and the people around him. I wouldn't claim or brag to be just like that, but I would say that my much smaller struggle, my much, my much kind of uh, more endurable injury has become a bridge to other people in a way that um, has been meaningful to me. I understand because I've been in this situation that when someone is struggling, has had something like what happened to me happen to them, they actually want to be asked about it. We, we suffer a an excess of courtesy in this world of ours. You know, we're all polite. We don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to be invasive. But sometimes people really want to be asked in a genuine way, how are you doing with that? Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't and if they don't want to tell you, you'll you'll get that signal very quickly and you will be able to turn on a dime and move back from it. But I mean, I, I was like that. I was too loath to ask. And Bob's a great example. He and I have been good friends for more than a decade now. And we have uh, we have had tequila and wine together, and he's talked expansively about just about everything, dating Deborah Winger when he was a young single man, all of it. And yet I had never thought to ask him about something I was quite curious about, which is, Bob, are you still bothered by the missing piece of your leg? How hard was that period of your life? He had given me every signal in our relationship that he was an open book. And there was a chapter of that book I never dared read because I thought I was being polite. And really I wasn't, or I learned that it wasn't politeness. It was more akin to obtuseness. Yeah. It's hard to be friends and avoid what is probably the most profound and perhaps definitional experience in someone's life. Yeah. Yeah. And so the book gave me the kick in the pants finally to say, hey, Bob, you know, and I was just, I said, hey, Bob, I'm, I'm, I've always wanted to ask you about something. Now I'm actually doing a book. So cards on the table, your words are not just for me. They may be for the world. Um, how about if we schedule a lunch and just talk about Vietnam and you losing a portion of your leg? And, you know, and then I took in a breath thinking maybe he's going to say, what the hell? But no, he said, sure. Uh, let's see, Wednesday, I got Wednesday, I got next Monday. <laughs> I mean, 
It yeah. was immediate. Yeah. One of the things he said was, I can see somebody hurting because I know what pain is and I know what I need to do to adjust so I can see it. We all muscle through it and I can see it. I can see it in their face. And, you know, when I was reading that, you, you later in the book write about Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. But that was the first person who I thought about in public life when I read that, because whatever strengths and weaknesses, this is clearly uh, his superpower, you know, this kind of preternatural sense of empathy that is born of tremendous loss and pain. You wrote about uh, going out on the campaign trail in 2020. I I was out a little bit and I was at a Biden event. And the thing that struck me were the number of people who lined up after the event to share some personal tragedy or sadness that they had. It was like Lourdes, you know, they were coming <laughs> uh, that he, because they knew that he, uh, that he would understand uh, and he would give out his cell phone, much to the consternation of his staff <laughs> uh, to all these people. But that is an extraordinary power uh, that he has. And those people who were lined up, they, they, to, to my earlier point, they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to be recognized, if only for a moment. Um, they didn't want not to be asked about the difficulties in their life. They didn't want not to be asked about a struggle in their past. They wanted a moment when that was acknowledged, and Biden was offering that to them in an extreme, you know, in an extremely, I mean, in, in, in the most incredible way, because he's a, he's a guy who was vice president's campaigning for the presidency. And I agree with you. That is his superpower. That is that is the way in which most Americans who look at him can see a real human being and can see a reflection of themselves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. I don't want to take this off into another direction because I want to, there 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 are other things that you've raised in this book that I I want to cover. But just as an aside, uh, how do you think he's doing? Um, I think he is in. Uh, I think I think he's been confronted with one of one of the most difficult presidencies in history. I think he he came into office amid a pandemic and all the economic disruptions of that. Um, I think he saw he, he came into office uh, in an era of, as we just discussed, some of the most intense partisanship and polarization in our history. Um, and now, on top of all of that, he would not have listed as his first greatest, as his five greatest fears or likely challenges, a land war in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I have trouble. That's all by way of evasion, David. I have trouble even putting on my kind of stern critic hat. Because there, but for the grace of God, goes any other president. Um, and I think at the very least, I choose to be positive at this moment. And I think at the very least, Joe Biden projects um, a level of decency and earnestness that are that are really important now. This is not the time to have a cowboy in the Oval Office. And this is not to have somebody who's preening and posturing. And whatever his other shortcomings and whatever good or bad decisions he's making, and history will judge that better than I will. It gives me comfort that I don't think he's driven by ego and petty concerns in the way a great many of the men who have sat at that resolute desk have been. 
But I will put the question back to you because you are a far more astute. I hate when people do that. I agree with everything that you've said. You know, interestingly, later in your book, you talk about uh, your own doubts uh, about him when he ran because of age and your predispositions about uh, about age. I mean, that is working against him. We we are in a moment in history where uh, people feel like so much is out of control because of the maybe it's presentational. I don't. Maybe it's the relentless propaganda that's been, you know, but I think his challenge is that he doesn't always seem commanding in a period when people want someone to take command. I actually think on this uh, Russia situation, uh, I shouldn't call it that, on this debacle, on this horrific uh, war that's going on, I think he's been incredibly uh, sure-footed and, uh, I think, uh, responsible. Yeah. Uh, in just the way you describe. But, you know, there's a pr- there is a performance, there is a presentational aspect to politics, performative aspect to politics. And, um, you know, I think that has, it has hurt him, you know, a little. It's not just what you do in the office. It's also what how you look like you're doing it. Th- that's something that, you know, he continues to confront. I want to... Uh, talk to you about another politician you wrote about, Cyrus Habib. Did I say that right? Cyrus Habib. Habib. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the former lieutenant governor of Washington, who also uh, lost his sight and was kind of a sensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, he was uh, this incredibly impressive story. He overcame uh, his challenges and had this stellar academic career and became, uh, you know, uh, became a lawyer and he became the lieutenant governor of Washington. Everybody assumed he was going to be a governor of Washington and he dropped out yeah, completely yeah, and uh, decided he was going to go down the route to become a Jesuit priest. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's dropping out and then there's dropping out, right? Yes. Yeah. This was, this was as much a dropping out as you could do. And it was, uh, you know, it was not a, a whim it was triggered by, I think, the loss of his father uh, and, a, and a self-reflection about what actually made him happy, what actually satisfied him. So tell me what, what struck you about him and why he's included in this book. Well, I mean, he's, he's an extraordinary, extraordinary man for all the reasons you talked about. And it's such an interesting biography. He lost his sight when he was eight um, to a rare childhood cancer. Um, and when we say like academic superstar went to Columbia, won a Rhodes Scholarship, went to Yale Law, where his best friend was Ronan Farrow. Yes. <laughs> One of those yeah. weird small world things, right? Um, he told me a story shortly before he made the decision to uh, abandon his political career, which looked like it was going to bring him all the way to the governorship of the state of Washington. Um, and this is, by the way, in his late 30s. So he's a wonderkind, Right. He told me how he was climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, something he, and he realized he was, he got sick on the way up and he didn't think he was going to be able to summit. Um, and it had nothing to do with being blind. It had to do with the fact that he got a cold or something, but he realized because he was in such despair about not maybe reaching the summit, which he did, that he realized how much of what he was doing at that moment and at other moments was driven by vanity and was driven by proving to people that even the blind guy can do this. And it led him toward a truthfulness that had been missing from his life. And that was a big part of his decision to 
leave politics and study for the Jesuit priesthood, which, by the way, it's not even just becoming any old priest. The course of study to become a Jesuit priest is about as long and arduous and as vow of poverty as it gets. Um, And I think he's he's in the book as an example of the way in which um, hardship in general and disability in particular or a certain kind of disability can, once someone has worked through the emotional and psychological paces of that, um, become a sort of bridge not only to others, but to a higher degree of consciousness um, and to a more truthful level of living. Now, I say that. And I want to hasten to add, I'm not romanticizing disability, and Cyrus Habib doesn't romanticize disability. But his experience with blindness, his particular experience with blindness, is inextricable from the illumination that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, what was striking to me was we talked earlier about the prison of being an iconic figure and having to live up to being that iconic figure. He confronted that and saw yeah. it for what it was and turned away from it, uh, which is, is, is impressive, uh, to say the least. Um, I want to talk about you because you were, and to me still, uh, are an iconic figure in your own right. Certainly in journalism, uh, you, you were at the sort of apex of that as an opinion columnist on the, uh, at the New York Times for, for years, highly read, highly respected. You walked away from all of that amid this other, uh, these other challenges, and, and now you're teaching at Duke mm-hmm. and living in Chapel Hill, a much different setting than your, your apartment uh, on Central Park, uh, where you <laughs> lived for years. Living alone, you, your part, you and your partner split up during all of this. Tell me about your life. Tell me about that decision, how it was impacted by your experience with the loss of vision in one eye, if, if it did. The end of your book is so, in some ways, joyful and in such contrast to the beginning. Talk about that journey. Uh, well, that joy at the end of my book is genuine. I, I am probably a happier person now um, than I've ever been, or I'm more happy on more days than ever uh, because of this of this gratitude that has been the oxymoronic legacy of, of what I went through. Um, yeah, my, my decision. So, I mean, I was lucky. I only had to really take a half step away from the Times. I still have a You're relationship. You're still writing there, yes. Yeah, I still have a weekly newsletter that gets put up on the website as a column. So I get to continue some of that, you know, wean myself slowly, maybe is the way to put it. Um, <laughs> I, I had just, I had always wanted um, at some point um, to step off the, tr- to take one step off the treadmill, at least a half step off the treadmill. I had been curious about living outside of New York again. I'd been there for a very long time in a life where I moved around a lot. I had ceased to move around for some time. Um, and the way in which what I went through is relevant to coming down to North Carolina, um, developing a new kind of career tributary in academia, um, is I decided things I was curious to do, changes I was expecting to make soon. Why not make them sooner? You know, again, why not seize the day? Why not, you know, relish this moment? Um, I could end up losing sight in my other eye. And that could end up making it, despite all the workarounds that exist, despite the nimbleness of the brain, that could make it harder to do certain things and live in certain ways. So I don't want to waste time. I don't want to say, hey, this is a really good thing that I'll do in two years. If it's a really good thing and it is calling my name, I want to do it in two months or even two weeks if that's possible. And 
Talk about your life now. Tell me what it's like. By the way, taking one foot off a treadmill can be dangerous. But That's true. Uh, <laughs> it's a bad metaphor. That was a really clumsy. I call myself a writer and I come up with a ridiculous <laughs> metaphor like that. But it was apt because, you know, I mean, there is a tug and pull. Look, I confess because I am I'm confronting it myself. I know what I want to do, but I know that stepping away means stepping away from things that are at, on the surface satisfying. Oh, I read your piece the other day. Oh, I saw you on TV. Oh, right. you know, all of that. Um, but uh, so it's, it's not easy. But tell me, about, tell me about your life now. Well, my life, I, I, I teach at Duke, and um, uh, on a semester like this one where I have a full course load, even so, I probably only am on campus three days. Um, and those days are extremely rewarding because I think teaching and being around students is rewarding. Being um, in a higher ed setting on, on, you know, so many of these campuses are so beautiful. That's that's a lovely, a lovely way to be and thing to do. But the pace of my life is just extremely different and gentler and more nurturing. As I mentioned before, I probably two hours every day am in the woods walking on trails. That brings me great joy. And I think it brings me a, a level of emotional and mood stability that I've never had before. I know my neighbors in a way I never did before. I live in one of those neighborhoods where if a package is on my stoop for more than 18 hours, I'll get three text messages saying, hmm. are you not home? Would you like me to move it to the backyard? Um, I wasn't getting that in Manhattan. You know, I mean, this, this is going to completely, I think, resonate for you, David, but when I was living in Manhattan and I was not doing as much CNN as you, but doing quite a bit of CNN and I was, you know, on a lot of party invitation lists, just felt like every day, every night I was out, I was out, I was out. I was, you know, putting on a tie, putting on a jacket. Um, and it was electric in its way, but it was exhausting in many other ways. I now just feel like I breathe more deeply. I take in more oxygen. Um, I sleep more soundly. And if those make me a boring person, so be it. Um, I think these things are really important. Yeah. The thing that I would say to anyone out there is read this book because it reminds you of something that we should all think more deeply about, which is the simple joys that are available to us every single day in life of actual meaningful relationships and interactions with people, of being out and appreciating nature and a beautiful day, of the companionship of friends, but dogs and other uh, furry companions. But life is a gift. It shouldn't be squandered. The thing I love about your book, Frank, is the arc of it, because you've been through a journey and you helped take us through that journey with you. And where you landed is such an important place. And I think there's something to be learned for all of us in reading it. So I thank you for that and for your friendship and, uh, and for your time today. I thank, you for, I thank you for your time and your friendship, David. It's, it's a pleasure to know you and to be here chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.